All right. Good morning. I know it's cold. I know your bones are probably achy, but you need a little, little tension, a little energy this morning, whatever you have. So I got to admit, our bulletin is uh, full of deceit and lies this morning. Um, not by choice, but uh, Pastor Brandon, who was uh, had planned for the last three weeks to preach this morning, uh, we were going to start off in John. Some of you might already be turning there. Don't turn there. Um, but Pastor Brandon called us at uh, about 1030 on Friday night to report a positive COVID result. So he's feeling pretty good. He's a big guy. He can handle it. Um, but uh, he, you know, decided that we would obviously not expose anyone uh, to Corona. So he asked if I could take the, the, uh, the pulpit this morning, and I gladly said yes. Um, we're supposed to be starting our John series, our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, once uh, again, thank you to Pastor Gay for doing a great introduction last week. Uh, today we were going to be in John 1, uh, 1 through 5, but uh, we're going to go, instead of me rewriting a sermon uh, on John, uh, we're going to let Pastor Brandon preach the sermon that he already wrote uh, next Sunday, and uh, Lord willing. And uh, today we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, there's a few reasons why I chose Ephesians chapter 2, and especially uh, these this section, this portion of Scripture. Uh, one, very familiar with Ephesians, very familiar with this passage, so uh, putting together a last-minute sermon was a little bit easier uh, to do uh, here. Uh, second, we frequently visit Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 during our time of uh, confession, then our assurance of salvation. So uh, I thought, hey, let, let's have a, a good framework of uh, what this passage really means when we, we go there as a, an assurance of what Christ has done for all who are His. Uh, thirdly, uh, according to the uh, to church history and uh, the scriptures, uh, the Apostle John, who we will actually, once again, will be uh, studying uh, for some time uh, in the future, Lord willing, uh, but uh, according to church history, uh, John actually uh, pastored the church in Ephesus. Um, and he also wrote the Gospel of John from Ephesus. So uh, I thought, hey, it's a good passage to look at and, and even just look how the whole of Scripture uh, works together, right? When we look at Scripture, we have to realize that these were real people in real time, in real places. Uh, this isn't a, a fairy tale. It isn't a, a book that just uh, came to be by chance. But uh, these were real people like you and I. So join me in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you're new to the Bible, that's all right. Uh, Ephesians is in the New Testament. Uh, it's a smaller letter. If you need some help, ask somebody besides you. Don't be afraid to ask for help. We all need it at times. Amen. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to pray, ask God to help us, and then we will dive into this text and see what the Lord would have for us today. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 reads, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we pray. <clears throat> Father God, we are thankful, we're grateful that we have your word to guide us, to steer us, to correct us. Lord, we ask for your help today. Father, I pray for those that may have walked in here weary, heavy laden, those that may be attempting to bear the weight of their sin on their own. I pray, Father, that you would work through this text through the power of your spirit to move hearts to soften hearts to open eyes to open ears to what you would have the word speak father we need your help we need you to do something so we ask that what we know not you would teach us and what we are not you would make us what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said, amen. I'll never forget a situation that happened when my family and I were on a trip back in March of 2018. I was taking advantage of the indoor pool that was given to us as one of the amenities of the hotel we were staying at. If you've ever been in an indoor pool, you know that those jokers are loud. If there's people in there, it only proclaims the, the loudness of the chaos that's going on around you. This day was no difference. But despite the noise, I decided to take advantage of some downtime and attempt to get some reading in. Uh, there was a family that was present that uh, really caught my eye. Uh, they were a larger group. Uh, it was probably about 12 to 15 of them. They ranged from uh, children, small toddler age, to seniors that were there gathered. And I mean, this family just seemed to be having the time of their lives. They were playing, they were laughing, they were joking, they were throwing football, they were jumping in and out of the pool, just enjoying themselves abundantly. I noticed a few of the younger kids were walking around the hot tub area. And they seemed to be playing some type of game, a tag or something that they were had created on their own. And, it caught my attention that they were just so active in this area. Nevertheless, I, I went back to my reading and attempted to, to, to tune out the laughter, the uproar of the good times that were transpiring around me. Eventually, I found myself getting deep into the book that I was reading. A few minutes later, I realized that it wasn't really my excellent skills of concentration 
that it allowed me to concentrate fully and focus in on the book that I was reading. But the room, this indoor pool, had grown grimly silent. There was this weird, eerie feeling in the air. And I looked up and I saw the family that had just been excited and enjoying the time that they were able to have gathered around one of the small children. I jumped up to, to see if there was anything I could do. I, I, I run over, and as I do, I, I see there was one of the toddlers, this little two- to three-year-old little girl, lying there on the ground. She was lifeless, breathless. Her mother was frantically attempting to, to call 911 and, and, and screaming, and she's attempting CPR on this child, and other family members were, were running, and they were going to the hotel desk to, to try to, to, to get some help for this young child. Seconds seemed like hours. While I watched this lifeless little child lay there unresponsive. What made it worse was the, the, the agony I could see in this mother's eyes as she just tried everything she had in her own power to bring this little girl back. The family was weary. They were frantic. By God's grace, a group of paramedics came running in. They took over the CPR efforts, and they worked to revive this beautiful young girl whose future looked bleak and hopeless. I mean, every second seemed to last forever. And I, I remember thinking to myself, like, she's dead. She's gone. Then boom, just like that, her eyes open. She, she jumps up and super discombobulated about what is going on. She spits out water and it gets all of it out of her lungs and she starts to just scream. Her, her mother is, I mean, she's frantic. She's, she's losing her mind here. She's gone from a, a place of despair to uh, overcome with joy. The, the family that's standing around, they're like, what just happened? I mean, they were in shock. Apparently, the little girl had fallen into the hot tub as she was making her way around there, and she had gotten trapped under one of the, the jacuzzi jets, the, the riptide that kind of happens in the pool, and it had been so much for it. It held her underwater for a long time. By God's grace, someone saw her and, and pulled her up, and then the situation I just described took place. But nevertheless, I knew that God's power was on display that day. I, I knew that, that God had helped this little girl move from death to life. I, I knew that, that there was nothing that she could do. She was unresponsive. She was lifeless. I knew that if God had not intervened, that she would not have made it. It was one of those moments that you never forget. It was one of those moments that, that really stick with you for the rest of your life. And brothers and sisters, our text today teaches us that each and every one of us are spiritually dead before Christ. We are helpless. We are needy. We are 
unresponsive, we can't help ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to move ourselves from death to life. Someone has to intervene. Someone has to interject and do something on our behalf. See, before Christ, before salvation, this is all of our story. Now, we may have never been a, a little girl. Uh, about half of us in here will never uh, say that. Maybe you've never drowned, attempted uh, a CPR. Maybe you've not uh, ever been brought from a state of helplessness in that sense. But what Paul describes here in this portion of our text is precisely the same spiritual condition. Paul highlights man's natural condition apart from God's divine intervention. And then he proceeds to magnify the excellence of God's love displayed to us in Christ. As we look at this text, we're going to have three very simple observations. The first one is this. We are naturally enemies of God. We are naturally enemies of God. Verses 1 through 3, we see this. See, Paul here starts with the bad news. The biography of every Christian's life. Uh, he, he shows here the depravity of man apart from salvation in Christ. Now, depravity doesn't necessarily mean that we do as much bad as we can. Rather, it means that we are helpless, spiritually speaking, apart from God's work. We can't save ourselves. Let's read this here. It says, and you were dead. If you've got your Bible, underline that. Circle it. We were dead in the trespasses and sins. Then verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He says we're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature. Look there with me, right? Circle it, underline it. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what's the first thing that, that we need to note here? That we are dead. We were dead. And I don't know if you've ever seen a dead person, but dead people don't do much. And they definitely can't save themselves. They, they don't really talk much. They don't really move much. Uh, they're dead. Dead people can't help themselves. Notice the language here. He says that we weren't dead because we did sin. He doesn't say like, you, you did some stuff, so that made you dead. It made you die. You, you, you sinned, and it was an outward action. He says, no. He says we are dead because by nature, apart from Christ, we are in sin. Uh, the word in here indicates the sphere of our existence. Uh, like we are in it. We are, uh, it's a part of us. And a clear understanding of this helps to debunk any idea that some are uh, better than others. 
that they're like some people just need a little push. They just need a little help. You know, God helps those who helps themselves. Uh, not in salvation. It's a popular school of thought in our society today that also teaches this kind of uh, therapeutic, moralistic deism. And and what this teaches is that uh, we just need to be better versions of ourselves to gain salvation. Like, you just need to be a better you. And and, and that's how God is going to work. He's going to save. This false ideology teaches if we can just be nice to others and, and, and do good things to, to those and impact our society for better. Uh, if we have some outward morality, then we'll just wind up okay. Like you, You'll be good. Be good to others. Be kind. Be nice. Jesus really clears this up in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? If you've ever read that, uh, he, he pretty much teaches that it doesn't really matter like what you do. It matters what you are. Matters who you are. He, he teaches that it doesn't, it's not just the, the outward sins that disqualifies humanity. It doesn't just the outward things that would remove a a right relationship with God, but rather it's the internal thoughts, the the, the heart's posture, what we think, what we are, our overall sinful nature that proves our state of helplessness without Christ. Now, we we should all know, right, We, we don't need to look too far to see the effects of humanity's sinful nature. First and foremost, we can look within. See, I I know me, and you know you. You know the things that you don't tell anyone. You know the things that you don't like to confess. And then if you've got kids, it's just like, yep, we are born sinners. You, You see it happen. We're born into a state of spiritual helplessness. A sin nature that is in us because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because they have sinned, now uh, all of humanity that follows is born into sin. See, what happens oftentimes is that we, we look at the news, we, we look at those around us that maybe outwardly displaying some uh, sinful behaviors, and we say, like, that's the bad guys. Like, those are the ones that, man, they, they really need help, and oftentimes they, they need salvation, yes, But we must never negate the idea and the biblical teaching that without Christ, that we too are helpless. We're dead. We're dead in trespasses. The great reformer Martin Luther once said that he once became a monk and joined the monastery so he could avoid sin. But the problem was he took himself with him. Think about that for a second. See, he went there. He's like, all right, I'm going to escape sin. I'm going to go to a monastery that... Hey, you know, there's just nothing to distract me. There, the, the problems of the world will be gone. So there is where I will just, I'll live a carefree life. But the problem was he realized that it wasn't out there. It was in here. It was within him. He was by nature a sinner. 
my personal story, my own testimony, is one itself a story of great redemption. I was, I was reckless. I, I wasted my life for over a decade just chasing after everything in the world, uh, drugs, alcohol, money, power, anything that I could get my hands on. ran from the Lord. I chased everything that I thought would fulfill the the holes in my life that, man, if I could just do this, if I could just gain this, that, or the other, then things will be okay. And guess what? They they never were. By God's grace, he he pulled me out of my sinful state. He, He saved me and By God's grace, I I know, I knew that I needed to be saved. Oftentimes, I share my story with with people, and you know, people are like, like, wow, that's a a great, great testimony. I I wish I had a testimony like that. And, And that even just fundamentally, for very fundamental way, and not to, if you've ever said that to me, I'm not uh, discrediting you. What I'm saying is that fundamentally we often think like, oh yeah, you needed saving. And my fear is that oftentimes what happens is that there are maybe even some in here today that don't understand their dire need for salvation themselves because maybe they felt like, hey, I lived a pretty good life. I've done the right things. I've checked all the boxes. You know, God kind of owes me salvation, doesn't he? I've heard that before. That there was something that someone had within them that somehow God looked down and said, well, thank you for allowing me to save you. This text, the the overall soteriology, that just means the doctrine of salvation throughout Scripture, teaches us that, brothers and sisters, we are all helpless. We are dead in our trespasses before God intervenes. Jesus addresses such people that would come to the table as a, you owe me something, salvation. I've done something to earn this in Matthew 23, 27. Uh, You can turn there with me if you would like. But he says this, he says, woe to you. Woe to you. And these wasn't just like, woe to you. This was a, a, a woe is a, This was something that was drastic. To pronounce woe on someone in biblical times was was a cause of a a deep sorrow for that person. And and Jesus here, he's he's talking to this group who's trying to uh, proclaim that they're somehow better than the disciples, to those around them. And he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. He says, hypocrites. He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He says, essentially, like you you do the right things. You, You think you're doing things and outwardly you try to put on a facade like you've got it all together, like you're holy and righteous, but inside you have zero love for God. You don't love God because you don't understand your need for God. John MacArthur rightly puts it like this. says, Morality damns just like immorality. Let that sink in for a minute. Morality damns just like immorality. 
essentially what he means there is that man, those who think that they are somehow in God's good graces because of their good works, their morality, are in just as much, if not more, danger than those that are living pagan, reckless lifestyles. Paul goes on in verses 2 through 3 to kind of further expound on the gravity of our rebellion against God. Uh, We see these kind of three forces in which natural men follow. The first thing we see is that we followed the course of the world. We follow the course of the world here. Essentially what this says is like the ways of the world influenced our lifestyle. And for many, it still does. Cultural Christianity is, I mean, it's rampant in the church today. And we see here that Paul says that there are many who who were just living for the world, doing whatever the world does, it did. One way to test yourself, as Scripture calls us to do, to, to test our salvation, to, to ask ourselves, do I look more like the world or do I look more like Jesus, like the people of God? Am I pursuing holiness or am I pursuing worldliness? Is my life a path, a trajectory towards the American dream or a life of cross-bearing? life of carrying my cross, willing to die, to forsake all that I have for the name of Jesus. Man, that's a, that's a tough one for me too, right? I love my family. I love to work hard. Scripture tells us that, man, we are to be in the world, not of the world. He goes on and he says that we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now the question that we need to answer is, well, who is this prince, right? And essentially it's, it's Satan, Uh, Ephesians talks more about principalities and powers uh, more than any other New Testament letter. And it draws attention to the power behind these things. And that is Satan himself. Uh, In the Old Testament, the term uh, ruler or prince was a term used for national or local tribal leader. Uh, It would be kind of a a local, you're, you're running this part. So Paul uh, essentially here is saying that Satan is the leader of the sons of disobedience, or or in other words, unbelievers, non-Christians. Those are those that may be false converts even. He works on unbelievers. Now they are not completely possessed by Satan. There is not a, you know, everyone that is following the uh, Satan that are unbelievers. They're not possessed by uh, the devil himself. But what this teaches us and what Scripture teaches us is that they are possessed by a world that Satan controls, by a realm of darkness, you may say. Satan holds sway there. He lays the bait And more often than not, they go for it. 
they, they take it. They, they go. They disobey God. And then he further expounds this truth as we look at uh, the next part where he says that we followed our own sinful desires. Uh, this ultimately even just goes back to the point that it's not just the devil made me do it, but we follow our sinful desires. It's right here. Does the scripture tell us, right, about our heart? It's desperately wicked. The things we want naturally apart from God are not God. It's not the things that God would call us to. It's by nature we, we want these desires, our sinful desires. He says that they were passions of the flesh. They were desires of the body. They were desires of the mind. And if we're honest, right, I mean, we can, we can say, we can all admit that more often than not, uh, sin comes easier than obedience, right? Yep, we can all probably agree there. Maybe I'm the only one. But obedience is not always the easiest thing, and that's because we are continually at war, that our flesh and the spirit that is at work, that's, that's working. This is Paul's argument in Romans 7, right? He's saying, man, I, I, do, I often do the things I don't want to do. I'm still at war. We are redeemed. We are free. But our old sinful nature it likes to continually remind us and tempt us and, and go into action. We keep reading, we see that because of this sinful nature, because of our inherited sin, that we were naturally children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what does this mean? Well, uh, by nature we were doomed. We're helpless. We're justly under the judgment of God. We were dead to rights, caught in our trespasses. The diagnosis is very simple. It's very plain. It's not a hard text to really understand. It's a very simple message here. We were sick. No, no, no. We were dead. We're helpless. We were deserving of God's just and holy wrath. Verses 1 through 3, right? I mean, it points to the fact that we were lifeless, hopeless, and under condemnation. We're naturally enemies of God. We are in opposition to God and God's ways. See, Paul here, he, he lays out the hard and simple facts. The bad news first, right? He says, hey, look, you, you can't save yourself. Uh, Ephesians is often called the quintessential Paul uh, because really this is a, the most concise treatment of Pauline theology. He, he goes from the, the bad, the, the what we need to understand, to the good, the glories of Christ. And thankfully, here in this passage, while being confronted with the bad news that, listen, we can't save ourselves, we cannot respond, cannot be changed, cannot be saved without God. Thankfully, it reminds us of the gospel. He quickly moves from the bad news to the good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news based upon this is that, guess what? You, you can't save yourself, but the good news is that you don't have to save yourself. Amen? Amen? 
first observation, we're naturally enemies of God. Our second observation is that supernaturally, we are alive with Christ. Supernaturally, we are made alive with Christ, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. See Paul going back there to that language. Even when you were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I mean, he's so ecstatic here, he has to repeat it again. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Go back to the beginning of verse 4, circle, underline those two glorious words, but God. But God. One commentator puts it like this. He says, Paul draws our attention to the depth of our depravity in order to magnify the mercy and grace of God in saving us. Like a, think of this illustration here, like a black cloth on which a beautiful diamond sits. Paul gives us the diamond of the gospel with two of the sweetest words in the Bible, but God. See, when we see the gravity of our sin, we are forced to see the beauty of the divine intervention, the salvation that is offered to us through Christ. But God, I was lost, but God. I was hopeless, but God. I was condemned, but God. I was dead, but God. Brothers and sisters, he makes us alive with Christ. He, he moves us from hostile enemies that are naturally opposed to God to then now chosen members of the family. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, he chose you. He saved you. Not because of your awesomeness, but because of his awesomeness. We must also note how Paul highlights the character of our great and glorious God here. He, he doesn't just like leave him as this like mysterious ambiguous, arbitrary idea. And this is important, right? Because we often tend to question God's character when we are faced with troubling circumstances. Amen? Oh, I'm the only one, I guess. I'm glad we've all got it together today. Brothers and sisters, we all find ourselves in those times where we question, we wonder. Like, well, God, don't I deserve better than this? Come on. Our experience doesn't define God's character. Our experience our situation, our felt needs, our emotions. We don't get to define God. We'll let the Apostle Paul do that here for us. So what do we see about God's character? First, we look at His mercy. Because verse 4 says that He is rich He's rich in mercy. Don't just think of worldly riches. 
Think of all of those combined with all of his histories and eternity's sakes, riches. More riches you can ever imagine. So what is mercy? Some may know, some may, may not. Simply put, it's not getting what you deserve. It's not getting what you deserve. Not being punished for our sins as they deserve to be punished. Uh, mercy essentially is deliverance from condemnation. Uh, if you've ever played the game Mercy, has anyone ever played that? Uh, we used to play this as a kid, right? Uh, I don't recommend it now, but what would happen is you'd lock hands with someone else, right? You'd waffle their hands, which is just weird in itself, in, unless it's your spouse anyway. But you waffle hands with someone, and then you, you bend their hands back, right? Whoever's the strongest, you're literally, your hands get bent back in it. That joker hurts, and you're essentially at the mercy of the person that's stronger or more tactical than you are. And so you then have to scream mercy so then they uh, hopefully will stop uh, and not break your fingers or wrist. Okay, so, so picture this, right? And if you haven't ever played it, uh, maybe play it later today just for a moment. Just so you get the full impact. But essentially, God has every right, every reason. He is fully justified to crush us. There would be nothing wrong with his character if he did, because once again we remember that we are, we are trespassing. We are in opposition to his holy ways. This is us as sinners, right? He could every right reason to condemn, to punish. But God, being rich in mercy, saves us the wrath that we deserve. And then we see here the great love of God on display. Look then on in verse 4, because of the great love with which He loved us. Now this love isn't a generic love like the word we so casually throw around in today's society. This word love is translated agapeo. Okay, and this is the verb form of the, the, the form of love, the, the original word agape love, right? Uh, this type of love that he's talking about here is a love that is, is in action. It's something that's happening. It's, it's a way that he is, is going towards. It's essentially saying that he enjoys, he wishes to do something here. It denotes a love of reason, an esteem for those to which he has set his salvation on. So he has a great love for each and every one of his, and he displays it through salvation. God is active here, right? I mean, we need to remember, right? God's not this impersonal, some, some stone cold figure. But we can't be confused. This is not some impulse. This is not uh, impulse from feelings here. It's not a, a reaction to something that we have done. It's not a reckless love. It is intentional. It is covenant. It is steadfast. It is perfect. And brothers and sisters, it is effective. It's a type of love that you can 
can rest in. You can trust. You know, I know we all have different family backgrounds, some better than others. And oftentimes that we, we tend to uh, place our idea of, of who God is and His love based on the, the love that we've seen demonstrated around us. Once again, our experiences do not define our God. Amen? We look at the Scriptures, and here we read that God loves us. He loves us. He, he, he set His love on us. Paul also highlights God's magnificent grace in verse 5. Now grace is defined as extended kindness to the unworthy. Uh, kind of the free and unmerited favor of God. Now, Jesus drinks the cup of wrath, so then we get the cup of grace. He Essentially, he, he takes what we deserve, the wrath, then we get what we don't deserve, the love and mercy from God. And then we go on and we see that God is kind towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul also reminds even the, the Romans, right, in Romans 2, 4, why God is kind to us. And he says this, he says in verse 4 of chapter 2 in Romans, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance? So God is kind towards us. He's patient with us. But it's ultimately to point us back to Him for repentance, to turn away from our sins, to trust in the God of mercy and of saving grace. And this is what happens when we do. When we turn to God Verse 5 puts it, look there with me. It says, we are made alive. We are together with Christ. Then in verse 6 says that we are raised up with Him and we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Now see, this is supernaturally accomplished through Christ's finished work. Through His finished work, the, the fullness from His, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We're now with Christ. And what this tells us is just as Jesus called to Lazarus, get up and walk. Remember, Lazarus was dead. He says, get up, walk. He beckons, he calls to us today to get up and walk. What does this raised up and seated with him imply? Well, we see that not only is the believer now dead to sin and alive in righteousness through Christ's finished work, but we also enjoy the Lord's exaltation and in His preeminent glory. See, figuratively, uh, in a sense, we are with Christ now. Uh, we have not obtained the, the fullness of our salvation, right? Our bodies have not been resurrected and perfected for eternity, but there is a sense that right now, Christ is there. We are with Him. He is advocating for us, saying, mine Mine, mine. When you mess up, you have a mediator. You have an advocate between you and the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
This should give us hope now. As we remember that no matter what happens in this world, that brothers and sisters, we are safe and secure in Christ Jesus. As the 17th century Puritan John Flavel put it, Jesus, our head, is already in heaven. And if the head is above water, the body cannot drown. He is there. We are his body, his people. For ages to come, we will give praise to the Lord that we get grace and not wrath. And I personally think that right now our finite minds cannot really comprehend what this truly means. If so, we would, be, uh, we would live differently. We would live differently. But brothers and sisters, on the day when we meet our Savior, when we see Him face to face, we are overcome with the paramount wonders of the Lord God, and we sing in eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Only then will we understand the true glory of the gift of salvation. So we are supernaturally, we are moved from enemies of God to those that are now alive in Christ. So what do we do? I'm going to close by just kind of putting some legs on this, just some, some application and really looking here at now what do we do? We see that like, okay, we are, we have been moved from, from deadness to life. And essentially it's for a purpose as we see in verses 8 through 10. Look there with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, he clears this up. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We close here with the final uh, quick Observation number three here is that practically we are God's workmanship. Practically we are God's workmanship. Paul finishes this portion of the letter on a very, very practical term. Very practical level here showing us that the gracious gift of salvation should result in good works. Let me make something clear here. Good works are not the root of our salvation. They are indeed the fruit of our salvation. Faith alone justifies, but the reformers would say the faith that justifies is never alone. Meaning that we will see a change. There will be something that happens. There will be good works. True faith is always accompanied by good works. True regenerate Christians live differently than the world in every possible category. We give up our lives. We turn away from the me-centered way of living and say to live is Christ, to die is gain. See, because we understand that we have been given so much, we now understand that we, by nature, should be people that give much. We see that salvation is a gift. It comes through faith. Paul says it's, it's not something that you did. Says it's not your own doing, which which means like, hey, we can't generate this. We can't start this up. It's important to remember too that the the object of our faith is what saves us, Jesus Christ. It's not our faith itself. Faith is the means to which we 
set our eyes on Christ. Don't put confidence in your faith. Put confidence in the object of your faith. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to doubt. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has secured what we can never do on our own. And as he says in the Gospel of John, my sheep know my voice, and listen, nobody can snatch them from me. So man, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden today, if you are wondering and doubting the love of God, let me encourage you. If you have an inkling of belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are here today listening to these words, let it be a reminder to you of God's love for you. Paul debunks any idea that human volition produces salvation. He says we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ. We are created for something. And this something is good works. So real quick, you can write these down. One thing we just practically see is that Since we haven't earned it, we should offer it to all. The message of the gospel is is open for anyone. Oftentimes, this type of uh, view of of salvation gets a bad rap because people say, well, well, like, why would we, if he just chooses some, if he just picks some, then, like, why evangelize? Because faith comes by hearing hearing the word of God. So we know that, hey, we can't earn it and no one else can. So now what we do is we proclaim the majesty of Christ, the preeminence, the glories of the gospel, that he died so that men and women could be set free. They could live the life they never deserved and get the eternity that they could never earn. We offer that. We proclaim it. It also reminds us that there's nobody that's too far gone. There's no one that is too far removed from the love of God, the grace of God. Because guess what? There's nothing they do to earn it anyway. God didn't stop saving when he saved you and me. He's regenerating hearts, converting men from dead to life today. And now we, as his workers, as his workmanship, we proclaim those truths to all that we can. This should be a catalyst for evangelism. It should change the way we view evangelism because we realize that, like, it's not on my faulty words. It's not up to me to get someone saved. It's up to me to present the truth of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, showing the, the bad. Because, listen, we, we often need to know the bad before we can appreciate the good. Finally, we'll leave with this application and I'll close. We must be a people of love. People of real love. Meaning we should love one another as God has loved us. Meaning that we should love those around us as God has loved us. And once again, not to be redundant with the point, but true love, real love, holds people accountable. True love tells people 
when they are in error. True love helps someone to see what the beauties of the gospel proclaim. So brothers and sisters, as we close and sing our time, our close with singing, and if you cannot remember a time that you have been moved from, from dead to life, you've not understood the, the gravity of the gospel, the, the truth and the, the proclamation of what Christ has done, my call to you today is to cry out. Cry out to the Lord. Ask Him to, to work, to save, to change your heart. Maybe you've been playing church for a long time. Maybe you, you grew up in the church or maybe you're basing some of your, your salvation on things that you have done. Let this text today be a reminder to you that our only hope is that we fixate our gaze upon the cross of Christ. Our only hope in salvation is that we are not our own, but we are found in Him. And let us be a people that Sing the praises of our glorious Savior, not hoping in this life alone, but of the world to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the, the beauty of the gospel. The truth that is found in your word that teaches us that there is nothing we have done to earn good favor standing with you but because of your love for us because of your kindness your mercy father you made a way you developed a plan to save those which you loved help us to to rest in that help us to Proclaim that to others. Help us to be a people that uh, don't uh, try to uh, hold the good news of the gospel just to ourselves. Let us be a people that speak the truth in love boldly, courageously, extending mercy and grace to those just like we have been given ourselves. Fathers, we conclude this time with a song and, and then get to look to baptism of even a, a visible representation of some that have been moved from dead to life. God, work in our hearts. Help us in this moment. In Christ's name, amen.